Next few weeks, we're going to be leaving Colossians and dealing with the issue of the stewardship of life, being good stewards of the multiple blessings God has poured into our life. Romans chapter 14 is a discussion by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome regarding the issue of eating. Some people who were in the Lord said, you need anything and everything, and Paul sided with them. But there are some people who ate only vegetables because we believe they were afraid that the, the meat had been ceremonially unclean. And Paul says, listen, when you come together, don't look down. You who are strong in the faith, look down on your weaker brothers. Conversely, weaker brother, don't be arrogant about what your stronger brother eats. And then he, he came to this summation statement. He says, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, there was a situation in Corinth and involved ritual prostitution. It was part of the landscape. And some of the people in the church of Corinth, we think, were visiting houses of prostitution and they were raised in a platonic, neoplatonic attitude that says the body is not all that important. The body is the prison house of the soul. So really what I do with my body doesn't make that much difference. And Paul thunders forth. He says, no, you can't do that. Can't, will you take that which belongs to Christ and join them with the prostitute, thus in some way becoming mystically one with her? And he says, no, and conversely, he says, you are not your own, for you were bought with the price. Glorify God with your body. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Glorify the God with, with your body. Glorify God with your, with your whole being. And then in 1 Peter, Peter's writing to the church that he says, once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy because of Christ. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare or proclaim the excellencies or the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So, so you look at these verses just as an overview and, and, you know, whether we live or whether we die, we live to the Lord because we belong to him. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've been bought with a price. We're to glorify God with our body. And we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that we may declare the praises of the one who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Therefore, stewardship is the embrace of a divine trust with joy and sobriety. With joy because... For example, in Psalm 130, the psalmist is bowled over. He says this. He says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities or sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. And the psalmist says, how in the world can the great creator God who has no beginning and who has no end, how can the one who is eternal and majestic and the king and the ruler and the, the God of all creation, how in the world can that God forgive sin? But he does. He forgives sins through the sacrificial system that looks forward to the coming Messiah King. 
Therefore, you're to be feared. So, so stewardship involves living with great joy and sobriety. See, we don't live as individual people whose credo is, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. We live as people who say, I've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. I, I am not my own. I belong into the Lord. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I should glorify God with my body. And so there, there's this sense of joyful sobriety. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. said it so well. This is such an incredible statement. He says, if, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Wow. The host of heaven. So, so it is a, a, a joyful sobriety. The, the problem with, with me so often, with us, is that we don't understand that, that our walk with the Lord continually involves readjustments of obedience. And so we'll do well here and here and not well here. Now, a few years ago, there was something that was very popular. I had some friends who participated in it. It was called the Save Your Life Diet. And the Save Your Life Diet went something like this. I, I didn't do it, but my friends told me about it. So there's seven days in a week, they would say. I said, tracking with you so far. Gotcha. They said, for six days... This plan says that you eat low-carb, high-energy foods, no sugars. You exercise three to four times a week for more than 30 minutes, get your heart up. You lift weights a couple of times a week. But there's one day a week that's called your free day. And during that day, you can eat anything you want and as much as you want and just go for broke. I said, no, wait. you mean I can eat five milkshakes and three banana splits on my free day? Absolutely. Two pounds of bacon? Absolutely. I don't understand how that works. I still don't. They, they, they did it. That's kind of the way in my Christian faith. I say, well, I'm doing good here and here and here. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm doing but, but I really don't like the people in my office. Eh, I just don't like them. They're... You know, they will have meetings, and I'll slip out. I can go in the bathroom, and I'll go out, and I'll take that 26.2 decal off their car and throw it in the garbage. They just brag about running a marathon. Or lately, a couple of them have had these bumper stickers that say, NCAA football champions. I just rip it off and throw it away. But I do good in the other areas. This scripture I've been reading, the Bible says that Christ must be Lord. There's a man named Abraham Kuyper, one of the greatest quotes ever. Gave some lectures at Princeton. He said, there's not a single inch over all creation of which Jesus Christ does not call, this is mine. True of my life too. Everything. So it's continuous readjustment. So the question I want to deal with the next two weeks is what type of people are we to be? In light of the Lordship of Christ, in light of glorifying God with my body, what type of people should we be? And I'm, I'm going to go for that answer to something called the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. And the, the last part of the summation of the Beatitudes is this. 
Matthew 5, verse 13, Christ says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of people. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand so it can give light to all in the house. In the very same way, let your light so shine that men and women may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He says, you know, live in such a way that you don't lose your saltiness or your light. Saltiness is a preservative that gives flavor. As you let certain attitudes work their way in your heart and your life, you'll give flavor to life around you. You'll be an aroma of the kindness and goodness of Christ. And, and you'll help preserve your culture by being people of truth and energy. And as you do that, your light will shine. And your light will shine in such a way that people will see your good works and see your attitude and see your forbearance and see your forgiveness and they'll glorify your Father who is in heaven. And, and, he, and then he says, the way you get there are the Beatitudes. And there are eight of them. And he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are you, happy are you, when men and women persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad from the same way they persecuted the prophets who came before you. Wow. You won't hear that at a leadership seminar. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are broken down because of their sin. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are the approachable people, the teachable people, the humble people. Blessed are those who want to get more and more into the presence of Christ and know more of Him. Blessed are merciful people, gracious people. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. They have a desire to honor the Lord. Blessed are peacemakers. They run to make, for, make, make amends quickly. And blessed are you when you are passed over for a job or you're left off the short list for an office party because you don't do what they do and laugh at the jokes they laugh at. Or, or in some parts of the world, blessed are you when you are physically beaten for yours is the kingdom of heaven. For so persecuted that they the holy men who came before you. Now that, that's what Jesus says. And, and as we live that way, he says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. So I want to look at these Beatitudes the next couple of weeks. And walk through them. And that's, see, because they're just different, that's why there's a man named John Stott, an Anglican who died just a few years ago, a wonderful man, who wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He entitled it, The Counter-Cultural Christian. It goes, just, it goes against the grain. And yet Jesus says, this is the life that God blesses. This is the life that God uses. So number first of all, poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A poor in spirit means to be 
aware of, crushingly aware of our sin. It means, like I've said the last couple of weeks, to cry out with the Apostle Paul from Romans 7, at times, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Uh, being poor in spirit means that you are uh, someone who understands your sin. There's a statement in the worship guide from C.S. Lewis, and he says this. He says that, Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good above all else, that we are better than someone else, I think that we may be sure that we are being acted upon not by God, but by the devil. And then he said this, acid test. He says, the, the real test of being in the presence of God is either you forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin died in 1564, said this, that said, we are accordingly urged by our own evil things to consider the great things of God. And indeed, he says, we cannot aspire to him in earnest until we have begun to be displeased with ourselves. See, if somebody who's poor in spirit understands they're a sinner, understands that it's only by the grace of God, they understand they're one dumb decision away from blowing it. They understand that life is held together by a thread. They haven't fallen to the cultural zeitgeist of talking about grab the ring and do your own thing and you're self-made men. You, you realize it's the grace of God. I, I've had a privilege for the last years to be involved occasionally in our prison ministry. We have people that go out every week under the leadership of Jimmy Stewart. And I'll go to, to the prison and then go to death row occasionally. And, and, and sometimes I'll sit there and we'll sit in small groups and I'll talk to the men and I'll get to know them. You don't ever ask, why are you here? You just get to know them. And, but as they sh share their story, I can put on my sociology hat and say, well, they're here because many of them come from broken homes where they had no direction. Many of them come from great poverty. They didn't have a good education, and they, I think we need to have a good education and homes and so forth and so on. And, and, and it's true. But then sometimes you'll meet somebody and you go, it doesn't fit. I remember sitting down talking to a man one night and he was articulate and you can tell he was well educated and it turned out he was, a, he was an accountant. And as I got to know him, he said, well, you know, do you have any idea why I'm here? I said, I don't know. I don't, I don't. He said, I'll tell you what happened. I was at a party one night, and had a few drinks, got a call, went home to see my child, car accident. I killed the guy. I'm in prison. I thought, whoa. So easy. You see, we, we say, there go I say for the grace of God. But do we, really, do we really mean it? I met another man who, as I got to know him, just, he was one of the leaders of the Bible study. And he came home one day and his wife was with another man. They got in a fight. He killed him. I thought, whoa. You know, just... It it's, it's, hangs together by a slender thread. And that's why Galatians 6 is so important. It says, when somebody's trapped in sin, you who are spiritual, go and restore him gently. I mean, be gentle, period. Watch yourselves, lest you too be tempted. In other words, don't be all high and mighty. 
Wash yourselves. Because it's, it's just the grace of God. So to me, blessed are the poor in spirit, which means I'm approachable. I know my sin. I, 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 I under, I'm fully aware that it's the grace of God. And then, see, mourning flows from being poor in spirit. Mourning means that I grieve over my sin and the sin of my culture. It means that I don't just float through life, but I sit down and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, have mercy upon my culture. God, have mercy. Isaiah 66 says this, this is the one to whom I will look. He, he who's contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And I back up and say, do, do I mourn over my sin? As I'm poor in spirit, do I mourn over my sin? Do I mourn over the fact that I, I sin against the mercy and goodness of Christ? I say, Holy Spirit, by your grace, make me the man that you've called me to be. Please, God. And then do I mourn over the sin of my culture? Now, I'm going to talk about that for a few minutes, maybe more than a few minutes. But um, either this week or last week, who's website I look at is called Sanctity of Human Life Sunday in the church. Uh, has been for a few years. So I'm going to just talk about the Sanctity of Human Life and mourning over this issue in our culture. Snapshot. If you read survey after survey taken the last at least 10 years, it says something like this. And there's been a gradual trend to more be people being pro-life. For that, I'm very thankful. But according to the surveys, anywhere from 29 to 33% of Americans are strongly pro-life. That's where I am. The same survey tells us that anywhere from 23 to 25% or something like that are, are, are identified as pro-choice. Um, they see abortion as, some of them say even a good, which is most of mine, but, but somewhere in the middle of 40 to 50%, depends on what, how you average those off, of people who, who are somewhat pro-life or somewhat pro-choice. So this morning, I want to say to the people who are somewhat in there, consider the sanctity of life. And I want to say to those people who are vehemently pro-choice, please consider the gift of life. And I want to say to those of you who are strongly pro-life, be courageous and bold and brokenhearted and tender. So I also want to say that there's full forgiveness in Jesus for our sin, and there's healing. There are people here, many more than you would realize, who have been involved in abortion, either as the mother or the father or the parents. And, and, and there, there should be guilt and sorrow and brokenness in your heart over that. But in your guilt and your sorrow and your brokenness, you run to the cross. There's a dear woman at our church a few years ago came to see me, and she said, my life is just racked. I can't get over something. I said, what is it? She said, I've had three abortions. Three. And we talked and prayed, and I got on counseling, and she's doing well. But I mean, so it's, it's here. So I, I'm not here to condemn or to belittle, but, but it's, it's, it's here. My belief is that life begins at conception. I think the Bible teaches that. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139, that alone. So I'm going to give you a, couple, a background, a couple of stories uh, to help you understand. So in 1973, the Supreme Court voted in Roe v. Wade that abortion could be um, done for basically any and every reason, supposedly. And I was a freshman in college. I was just kind of bumping along. I didn't really think about it. Uh, went overseas for a few years, came back, went to seminary, and then in 1979, 
my first year of seminary, there was something called Whatever Happened to the Human Race, which was something that was uh, under the leadership of one of my heroes in the faith, Francis Schaeffer. Uh, and, and then a man I never heard of was his partner in this enterprise named C. Everett Coop, who was a pediatric surgeon from Philadelphia. So I went to the premiere showing in Dallas, um, 3,000 people, took a college student I was dating that later married me, and uh, one impressor. Uh, and they just talked about the sanctity of human life, and it kind of opened my eyes. And, and so I just started reading and thinking, and... I'm a seminary, I'm taking systematic theology, and my professor, who's a wonderful, dear, gracious man, a PhD, so, and I've, I've taught to respect my elders, I've taught not to question them, you know, I'm, all that kind of stuff. He's talking, and he's talking about life, and I just asked him, I, I gave him a softball question. I just, he says, God's a great creator God, he made us male and female, uh, we rejoice in creation, we should preserve the created order, we should be people who love uh, animals and beauty and whatever. And I said, uh, in your opinion, when, when does life begin? He said, that's a hard question. He said, but I've come to believe that life begins on the first breath outside of the womb. And I went, I, I said, I said, I disagree with you. I said, I don't think the Bible teaches that. I said, that, and we went back and forth and he kept, he's such a, he said, that's really a hard question. He said, that's a hard question. Listen, it's a hard question. But life is full of hard questions. Don't hide behind these issues. Was not always a hard question. The question is, what does the Bible say? And am I going to be man enough to, or woman enough to stand there? I think about just as I think about First Kings eighteen. One of my favorite stories: a guy named Elijah. He's a prophet. The nation of Israel has slid. They've gone into all types of abuse and child sacrifice and immorality, and they're worshiping a god called Baal and standing at these fertility poles called the Asherah poles. And there's this battle on at Mount Carmel between Elijah and eight hundred fifty of these prophets. And they have the sacrifice, and the issue is whoever's god burns up the sacrifice. Is, is God. And Baal's the God of fire. So it's kind of, he has home field advantage. You know? Home field advantage, touchdown favorite. And then the, the, the prophets of Baal cut themselves and scream, Baal, answer us with fire. Nothing happened, of course. And Elijah says, you know, cry out louder. Maybe he's on vacation. Seriously. Maybe he's, you know, taking a bathroom break. And then Elijah had the bull slaughtered that was going to be to Jehovah God, and then he did something that's absolutely bizarre. He had all types of water pull, poured all over the sacrifice. The God of fire, water doesn't work. And then he gives the shortest sermon in the history of sermons. He says to the people of Israel, quit limping between serving God and Baal. If God is God, serve him. If Baal is Baal, serve him. But so that you'll know that the living God is God indeed. God burned up the sacrifice. Boom. And the people said, the Lord, he is God. Jehovah, he is God. So, so don't, don't hide behind it. It's a hard issue. You've had hard issues this week. It, it is a hard issue. So I get involved, and I'm a college pastor, and uh, I speak about this to students. And about a year and a half later, they say, we're going to have a, a debate about, a lot, about life. And we would like for you to represent the pro-choice argument. I said, well, I, 
I'm just getting into this, but I'll be glad to show up. And so they said, we're having somebody from Planned Parenthood Dallas, this is North Texas State, to speak for the other side. And I went, okay, okay. And so I go to this thing, only about 80 kids, not that many students. I was expecting, they have to realize, if you're in a time capsule, you, you, guys, you guys are younger, just, just, you don't have any idea of what I want to say now, but th- there was somebody in the feminist movement called Bella Abzug. Remember her, some of you? She wore a big broad rim hat, and she was just an angry woman. And she was pretty, uh, her language was, was rough, and, and she was all about get, getting women together and burning the bras. I don't never understood why burning bras was a symbol of empowerment, but they would they'd have these bra-burning ceremonies, and Bella Abzug would be out there saying, go for it. And I thought Bella Abzug prototype would show up. You know, just kind of not very good fun to be around. In walked this 35-year-old, beautiful, well-dressed, gracious woman from Planned Parenthood who looked like she walked out of an executive board meeting in Dallas, Texas. And I thought, great, great. And we talked back and forth, and she presented her position, I presented my position, and this is what she said. No one will forget it. She said, we believe life begins at 12 weeks. We would never touch a fetus after the 12th week. Well, that was her opinion. And, and, but you have to, as you study this, the, 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 the pro-choice crowd keeps moving the goalpost. And now the goalposts are off the field. Now the, the pro-choice advocates say, you can take the life of a baby one minute before it's born. Boom. No big deal. In fact, there's a book written in 1995, a few years ago, by a guy named Peter Singer called Rethinking Life. He's professor of biomedical ethics at Princeton, unarguably one of the two or three best colleges in our country. And in that book, he said this. It's just unbelievable. He says, I've come to the conclusion that we should not proclaim life to be life until the baby is 28 days old. So up until the 28th day, the parents have the opportunity to deny life to that child. That's, that's, when, you, when you are living in the land of no rootedness, that's where you stand. Why not say six months or six years? Or some of you say, why not say 16 years? You know, <laughs> that type of thing. So, so anyway, it's... it's uh, that was before, my debate was before the day of ultrasounds and sonograms. My wife was in a fitness center recently talking to a woman, and the woman said, I'm going to go downtown to Women's March. And Sarah says, what are you marching about? And she lifted the laundry list, and Sarah said, you know, I believe in absolute equality. So I think that's wonderful. But the one issue that you're marching for that I just can't understand is abortion. And then my wife said this to her. She said, I, I, we have aborted 57 to 60 million children in our country since 1973. And here's what the woman said. Yeah. Yeah. No big deal. I was going, oh, God. So, so see, I, I'll show you this. Um, I, I hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Because I have to stand here and look at my children and their contemporaries and say that on the watch of my generation since 1973, 
we have aborted the nation of France. France. France has 62 to 65 million people. We've aborted France. It is a, a, an incredible sorrow in my heart. And um, I, it, it just breaks my heart. And I, I, I long for the day where maybe my grandchildren would say, Granddad, really, there was a time when we took children out of the womb for gender selection and birth control? I said, yes, there was a time when we did that. Um, I have, a, this, I got very emotional last hour. I think I'll do be okay this hour. I've got a picture here of a little baby at 10 weeks of age. Just amazing. I carry this with me because this is my second grandchild out on the West Coast. Okay, West Coast. And uh, uh, it's just a joy. So I look at this issue and I go, um, God give us the grace to be the people we're called to be. There was an article in the National Review this week. I thought it was so well written. And the woman who wrote this, I really like her writing and I'm just going to read part of it to you, and I'll be finished in five minutes. But it's by a woman named Frederica Matthews Green, and she, she, let me just read it. She says, at the time of the Roe v. Wade decision, I was a college student, an anti-war, mother-earth, feminist, hippie college student. That particular January, I was taking a semester off living in D.C. and volunteering at a feminist underground newspaper called off our backs, and I had a bumper sticker that said, legalize abortion. At the time, 1973, we didn't have much understanding of what abortion was. We knew nothing of fetal development. We consistently termed the fetus, quote, a blob of tissue, close quote, and that's just how we pictured it, an undifferentiated mucus-like blob, not recognizable as human or even as alive. It would be another 15 years before pregnant couples could show off sonograms of their unborn babies, shocking us with the obvious humanity of the unborn. We also thought back then that few abortions would ever be done. It's a grim experience going through an abortion, and we assumed a woman would choose one only as a last resort. We were fighting for that last resort. We had no idea how common the procedure would become that today one in every five pregnancies ends in abortion. What we didn't realize was that once abortion becomes available, it becomes the most attractive option for those around the pregnant woman. If she has an abortion, it's like the pregnancy never existed. No one is inconvenienced. It doesn't cause trouble for the father or the baby or her boss or the person in charge of her college scholarship. It won't embarrass her mom or her dad. A woman who had an abortion told me recently, everyone around me was saying they would be there for me if I had the abortion, but no one said they'd be there for me if I had the baby. For everyone around the pregnant woman, abortion looks like the sensible choice. A woman who determines instead to continue an unplanned pregnancy looks like she's being foolishly stubborn. It's like she's taken up some unreasonable hobby People think if she would only go off and do this one thing, everything would be just fine. And then she says this. Please hear this. But I changed my opinion 
It was in 1976 in the summer. I was home and I picked up my dad's Esquire magazine. I flipped through the pages and came across an article entitled, What I Saw at the Abortion by Richard Selzer, MD, a surgeon, who was in favor of abortion, but he had never seen one, so he asked a colleague next time if he could go along and observe. Selzer described seeing the patient at 19 weeks pregnant lying on her back on the table. The doctor performing the procedure inserted a syringe into the woman's abdomen and injected her womb with a solution which would bring on contractions and cause a miscarriage. This method is not used today because too often the baby survived the procedure, chemically burned and disfigured but clinging to life. Newer methods, including those called partial birth abortion and dismemberment abortion, readily ensue death. But after inserting the hormone into the patient's womb, the doctor left the syringe standing upright on her belly, and then Seltzer wrote this, quote, I see something other than what I had ever expected. It is the hub of the needle that is in the woman's belly that is jerked, first to one side and then the other. Once more it wobbles. It's tugged like a fish, fishing line nibbled by a sunfish. Close quote. He realized he was seeing the fetus's desperate fight for life. And as he watched, he saw the movement of the syringe slow down and then stop. The child was dead. Whatever else an unborn child does not have, he has one thing, a will to live. He will fight to defend his life. The last word in Seltzer's article were, quote, whatever else is said in abortion's defense, the vision of that other defense, i.e. the child's defending his life, will not vanish from my eyes. And it has happened that you cannot reason with me now. For what language can you speak against the truth of what I saw? Close quote. And then she writes, the truth of what he saw deeply disturbed me. There was an anti-war, anti-capital punishment, and vegetarian, a firm believer in so, that social justice cannot be won at the cost of violence. Well, this sure looked like violence to me. How had I agreed to make this hideous act the centerpiece of my feminism? How could I think it was wrong to execute homicidal criminals, wrong to shoot enemies in wartime, but it's all right to kill our sons and our daughters? For that was another disturbing thought. Abortion means killing not strangers or the enemy, but our own children, our own flesh and blood. No matter who the father of every child aborted is or every woman's own son or daughter is the child that is theirs. So I read that and our time is gone, but let me just, how do we live? We live poor in spirit, we mourn, we're meek. We hang on thirst for righteousness. So what do we do? Number one, don't lose your salt or your light. Don't, don't, don't hide your light under a basket. Speak with grace and dignity, but speak. Speak of Christ. Speak of forgiveness. Speak of the joy of life. Speak of the order of life. Speak of the beauty of male and female made in the image of God. Speak and pray. Pray that we'd be people who take small steps. Thank you for those of you involved in foster parenting. Thank you for adopting. Thank you for so many of you who, this church has given, I think as far as it, millions of dollars to the Low Country Pregnancy Center through the years. Half the board has come from our church, and I'm glad for that. 
They talk to young women trapped in pregnancies that are difficult and say, choose life. Speak with grace and dignity. This past week there was a March for Life and on page three, section A in the Wall Street Journal, uh, gave a report on this March for Life. And a couple weeks ago, there was a news flash that, that, that there was going to be a woman there named Kellyanne Conway. And never before had a, an official from the inner circle of the presidential administration ever spoken at the March for Life. Ronald Reagan sent a video. George H.W. Bush sent a video, I think. But nobody had ever really been there from the administration. So they were just, this is really significant that one of the chief advisors to the new president is going to be there. And then last week, the word spread like a tsunami that not only that, but Vice President Mike Pence will be there. Wow. And so the Wall Street Journal had an article. Pence vows support an anti-abortion rally. And this is what the Vice President said. Be assured we will not grow weary. We will not rest until we restore a culture of life for ourselves and for our posterity. Mr. Pence is the highest-ranking official, elected official, to ever speak at the March for Life. Believe it or not, Mr. Trump tweeted. <laughs> President Trump tweeted to all of you marching, you have my full support. So I, I say pr pray for the president and for our Senate as this uh, Supreme Court nominees re revealed this week. Pray that... He or she will be a man of deep conviction who loves life. But speak with grace and dignity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and for the, the, the gift of being your child. And Lord, we live in a, a culture that would look at the Beatitudes and in many ways say, you've you got to be kidding me. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are meek people. And yet, Jesus, you said this is the path of blessing. So uh, in, in our neighborhoods, let our lights shine. In our work, in our, on our campuses, let our lights shine. Lord, let us be seen for people who love you and love people. I pray this week we do something that's outside of our comfort zones because we want to let our light shine. We don't want to hide our light under a bushel basket, but we want it to be out there. Lord, you have called us to yourself to represent you to our contemporaries and our culture. And may we do that. Give us the grace to walk in the way of Christ. Um, we pray for our country. We pray, Lord, you would... That, that, that the fact that we've had all these abortions, that it wouldn't just be a statistic, it would be a burden in our heart. You've blessed this country in every way imaginable. Forgive us as a church for not speaking and loving the way we should. Let us be salt and light, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.